Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fill this place. Illuminate our minds and hearts to know our Lord Jesus more deeply. We praise you, God. We praise you, God, for the gift of this day, the gift of this time together in community and fellowship as we dive into your word. And we allow these words to be written on our hearts to encounter your son Jesus in them. To hear him speak words of comfort, salvation, words of healing, words of direction and discernment, words of salvation to us. We ask that this time be laid at your feet, that you would remove any distractions from our minds, anything drawing us away from this place so that we can be drawn completely into your presence and whatever unique message you have in store for each one of us tonight. You knew each one of us would be here, and you desire to come to each one of us in a unique and specific way. And so we pray we would be receptive to you, Lord, how you are speaking and moving in the words of sacred scripture and the words we share with one another. We lay this time at your feet, and we pray that your will would be done in every area of our lives. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Come on in. Grab a seat. Join a table. We are in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And this is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the first Sunday of Lent. Lent is upon us, friends. So tomorrow is Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, and it is named as such because uh, in the time of the Middle Ages, everyone needed to eat all of their food so that they could fast during Lent and it wouldn't spoil. Uh, And so enjoy the celebration, the cycle of feasting and fasting that we get to enjoy in the Catholic Church. Uh, If you don't know about Lent, Lent uh, begins this Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. Uh, Ash Wednesday is not a holy day of obligation, but you're welcome to come to our numerous masses and services that happen. So you can receive the sign of the cross and ashes on your forehead to be reminded of the fact that from dust you came and to dust you shall return, that one day we will die. And so we should always keep in mind the need to prepare for uh, our, our heavenly home, hopefully getting to our heavenly home. And so Lent is devoted to that as we work toward the joy of Easter. And we do that by practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So remember, on Wednesday, uh, to fast, that means one meal, and to abstain from meat. And then every Friday of Lent, to abstain from meat. And then the last Friday of Lent, which is Good Friday, we do the same thing we do on Ash Wednesday. We abstain from meat and we fast uh, to be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, to be in union with that sacrifice in some small way in terms of the insignificance that we experience in fasting and abstaining from meat. Uh, And then you are welcome to give something up, take something on, give alms to the poor, however you choose to practice that. So a reminder of those things uh, for this upcoming season of Lent. And so this first Sunday of Lent, we have uh, a return. We read some or part of this gospel uh, several weeks ago as we're beginning in the uh, gospel of Mark. Uh, And so we'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 tonight which we'll hear proclaimed this Sunday. So we'll read this a few times through because it's short, probably three times. First time through, just get a picture for what's being said. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He has just been baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. And this is what happens immediately after. Mark 1, verse 12. At once, the Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert. And he remained in the desert for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the gospel. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Short and sweet, but jam-packed. A lot we can dive into here tonight. So you get a picture for what's being said. Jesus tempted in uh, the desert for 40 days, and then he begins his public ministry with that proclamation. We're going to read this two more times, and as we do, even though this is short, I invite you to reflect and see, is there any particular word or phrase or detail that resonates with you? Something that poses a question, speaks to you personally, does not need to be to interpret the passage theologically. We will get into that. But take a moment to bring this to prayer. How is the Lord speaking to you directly through these words of sacred scripture? So we'll read this twice more, and I just invite you during that time to reflect, underline, journal, pray. Why is this standing out? Um, However you choose to reflect on the things that resonate with you. At once the Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert, and he remained in the desert for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. At once... The Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert, and he remained in the desert for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. One more, why not? (laughs) At once, the Spirit drove him out into the desert, and he remained in the desert for 40 days tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you, as always, take a few moments to reflect on this passage. What stood out to you? Why did it? What questions did it pose? Uh, How did it resonate with you? If you're watching this later, please let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 to 15 minutes at your tables. Share those things that stood out, the questions that are on your heart, and then we will bring it back to the larger group for some teaching and some Q&A. So take about the next 10 to 15 minutes. So a few things uh, I'd love to point out that if you were hearing this or reading this at the time it was written, first century Israel, um, some of the things that would immediately stand out to you, some of the key words, especially to a Jewish audience, uh, but even a Gentile audience, some of these kind of be half and half, um, but uh, the desert, 40 days, kingdom and gospel. Okay, so let's start with the desert. Um, The desert was the place in the Old Testament of testing and wandering. Remember, the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. We'll come back to that 40 theme quite a bit. Um, But it's a place of transformation, a place of new beginnings. And that relates actually to the number 40, which we'll talk about. Uh, Anyone recall the first place in the Bible where people are cast out into the wilderness? I'll give you a hint. It's very, very, very early. (laughs) Yes. So the same word in Hebrew to be cast out uh, is a synonym for the words that are used here in Greek. The Adam and Eve are literally cast out of paradise and this new creation that they have to go out into the place of testing, into the place of now having to grapple with the reality of sin, the fact that sin has entered the world, that they've disobeyed God, and now they have to wrestle with that. 
And that, in, in essence, Jesus going into the desert is a symbol for the fact that he is seeking to be the new Adam to reverse what Adam and Eve did wrong in the beginning. And so in order to do that, he has to go out into the desert, just like Adam did, and to undo the sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world by eventually dying for our sins on the cross. And so it's kind of this interesting beginning to the story of his public ministry that he mimics the action of Adam in order to show how he rightly should have responded, Jesus being the new perfect man, the new Adam, uh, in, that, in that same vein. And so thinking of the desert, you would have thought of that. You would have thought of uh, Elijah wandering in the desert. You would have thought, obviously, again, of the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. You would have thought, um, I think particularly you would have thought of Leviticus chapter 16. And Leviticus chapter 16 uh, is the story of the Day of Atonement and what happens in the Day of Atonement. Um, so Aaron, Moses' brother, he had four sons, and his two uh, older sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, if you're looking for baby names, Nadab and Abihu, great names. Um, Nadab and Abihu, they are, uh, they are um, um, struck down by God because they offer an unholy fire, an unholy sacrifice in the temple in a way that they were not permitted to do. And the, the temple was considered so holy, so clean, so unprofane, that if you were to do anything against what God had asked, uh, then you are defiling the entire way in which the Hebrew people were being instructed to come to God and worship. And so they're struck down by this act of um, this act of disobedience. And so in order to purify the temple, this is the precursor to why they have the Day of Atonement, they have to purify the priests and the priesthood and the entire temple area. And the way that they do that is they get two goats, and upon one of them, they, well, one of them gets sacrificed, and the blood of that goat gets sprinkled all on the inner holy of holies in the temple, and it gets placed on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe uh, of the high priest and of the priests to purify and uh, cleanse them. I believe holy oil is also placed on, the, on those same areas. Ironically, the only other time uh, that I'm aware of that those motions are happened is points back to last week, last week in the cleansing of a leper. Uh, we didn't get so much into that detail, but that happens in that purification ritual of leprosy. So anyways, so they sacrifice this goat in that very specific way to offer this blood, this source of life, uh, to atone for these sins. And then on the other goat, they, the high priest lays his hands on the other goat and announces the sins of the people upon the, goat, on, upon the goat, and that goat becomes the scapegoat. That's where we get that term. And the scapegoat is cast off where? Into the desert. Okay, it's why the desert has become known uh, as the place of the wild beasts. It's the place of testing. It's the place where the devil and the demons very likely dwell, and the place where all of these, you could say, sin-soaked animals that are carrying the sins of the people away from the camp and away from the temple are now living freely out in the desert. So it came to have this characteristic of a very dangerous place, but also a place where God brought new beginnings and new creation. So when you think of the desert, you probably would have called those things to mind. And a lot of them had to do with the, the second thing that I pointed out, which is the number 40. Now, I pointed this out before. We haven't talked about this in a while. It gets me very excited to talk about uh, that the Hebrew language is a geometric language, which means every word, every letter, has a numerical significance because there are no numbers in Hebrew. They use the letters as numbers, okay? So the number 40, uh, if you uh, recite the Hebrew alphabet, the first 10 letters are 1 through 10, and then from there you count up by tens, okay? So Aleph, Bet, Gemel, Dalat, Chayvuv, Zayin, Hetet, Yod, Kuf, Lamed, Mem, the 13th letter is 40, is the number 40. And the letter Mem, uh, M, Anytime you have an M letter or an M beginning of a word, it brings about the image of the number 40 for a Jewish person. They were very into numerical symbolism in their, um, in their language. Uh, an example of this is in the, the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew. Uh, if you read that, you, you know, may, we may think like, what's significant about a genealogy? It sounds very boring. There's all these different names. But it says at one point, in between these different generations, there were 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. The number 14, you can spell as Dawood, which is D-V-D, David. So anytime you see the number 14, Matthew is saying, descendant of David, descendant of David, descendant of David. So if you know this, you can see a lot of the hidden symbolism that the author is trying to put forth of what's really going on here. Okay? So some important words that begin with Mem are Mashiach, Messiah, and uh, what's the word? Um, Mayim, water. 
Okay, so there is a significance of water passing through water. There's a significance of the Messiah, uh, Mosheah, to draw out of the water, where we get the name Moses, also begins with Mem. And so all of these things would call to mind that number 40. 40 also has a very direct, literal uh, uh uh, comparison to different moments in the Old Testament uh, where they wander in the desert, as I said, for 40 years. Once they get to Mount Sinai, Moses and the people, Moses goes up the mountain and he's on the mountain in the presence of God for how long? 40 days. Uh, and he's there so long that even though the presence of God is before the people and they say, wow, God is here, they fall into idolatrous worship and they build the golden calf. And so Moses then has to go back up for two more sets of 40 days in seeking forgiveness and atonement for the people uh, for what they have done. Elijah journeys for 40 days and 40 nights to get to Mount Horeb, where he hears at the top of the mount, not God in the fire, not God in the earthquake, not God in the big strong storm. He hears God in the silent whisper of the wind. Um, who else? Noah and the 40 days and 40 nights of the ark. And again, the letter Mem uh, being the beginning letter of water, Mem has this symbolism of beginnings and new beginnings, recreation in a sense. And so what happens in the great flood with Noah is that the entire creation is destroyed and there is an opportunity for recreation. Through this period of testing of 40 days, a journey, one that may be difficult, one that may involve temptation and testing, there's an opportunity for new creation new life. And that happens in all of those circumstances with Noah, with Moses, with Elijah, and with Jesus. And so it's no wonder he would use these very uh, strong Jewish symbols to echo back to these very prominent figures that any Jew, when they would hear these numbers, these places, 40 days in the desert, their ears would perk to Moses, Elijah, Noah, the covenants, the promises, the Messiah. He's here. 40, 40, 40. So very, very significant. The other two things that stand out, probably more so for uh, maybe both Jews and Gentiles for kingdom, uh, and then Gentiles for, uh, good, for the gospel, um, is that the kingdom would evoke in the image of the Jews the Old Testament kingdom of David. And so when you're saying the kingdom of God is at hand, that the time of fulfillment is here, they were all expecting a Messiah who is going to be a political revolutionary, who is going to take them out from um, oppression from Rome and to be the great empire of the Hebrew people once again. And so you hear that language, you're thinking kings, kingdoms, expansive dominion over the earth like we once had. And even uh, after King David, in the time, the 150 years leading up to Jesus, you had the Hasmonean dynasty of the Jewish kings who had overthrown the Greeks and repurified the temple. And so this was still very fresh in their mind. They thought maybe the Maccabees were going to be those messianic figures who were going to bring about the, the, the kingdom of God. And so now they're hearing this language. It's fresh. People are excited. This has happened very recently. And now this language is being used. That's very significant for them. And for Gentiles, if they hear the, the, the phrase kingdom, they're going to think of Rome. They're going to think of the emperor. And the emperor, when he would go and proclaim victory, when he had victory over an enemy, he would go and announce that victory. He'd send someone to go announce it back to the place where they began the attack from. And that person was the bearer of the euangelion, the good news, where we get the word evangelize. We took it from Roman culture uh, as the term for the person who would proclaim victory over the enemy all the way back to the hometown or the home base, wherever it was. And so you would hear these phrases as either a Jew or a Gentile, and you would very clearly perk your ears up to the fact that something very important and significant is about to happen. For the Jews, it would echo back into your entire tradition of the covenants and the prominent figures of the Old Testament scriptures, those that were associated often with the coming of the Messiah, like Elijah. And if you were a Gentile, you would hear this very tension-building language with the empire of secular society of Rome and of that oppressive force and think, wow, something, something here is seeking to contend with that in some way. And so no matter who you were, this is very loaded language. And it would trigger you to think about a lot of the different cultural contexts and a lot of the Old Testament contexts um, that are just being brought up in these three or four verses. So I want to point all those things out. There's a whole lot more here, uh, but I want to open it up for questions, things that stood out to you, what you're curious about. Yes, John. Uh, to your last point, it's kind of, a, kind of a hard question maybe to answer. But sure. Here we go. So unrelated side point. Yes. Um, the, the young creationists say the earth appears old, perhaps 
or maybe everybody says the computer's old. Mm -hmm. And so I think their whole argument is flawed because that's like a deceiving God. Like it's, God wouldn't like make it look old. I see, yeah. Mm -hmm. So on that same like tangent, all that language is very strong and true as far as kingdom. Mm -hmm. And it seems like every Jew ever in the Bible, there's not a single person that can really say it's a spiritual kingdom. I mean, without a doubt, like every even at the last moment, it seems like everybody was like, "When are when are you gonna like come with your army?" Yeah. So like, why wasn't there any more effort to like say this is not like only at the end he says, you know, it's not of this world. Hmm. Which I, I always like, like I probably would have been fooled too. Like, yeah. We have we have hundreds and thousands of years of of this type of warfare, this type of you know uh, ebbs and flows of kingdoms, and so. Mm-hmm. I don't know how could you how could you blame him? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's like I don't know what was Jesus really? What's his goal here? He's, he's you know, his Holy Spirit is inspired to write these and invoke those memories yeah. that, are, that are founded in historical events that appear like the Davidic kingdom and like the Maccabees and yeah. and, and uh, you know annihilating all the people that that they took the um, the promised land from. Mm-hmm. The war is fought. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, and now I have to flip a switch, and it's like, oh, it's not a war. It's an mm. interior like, battle. Yeah. And so it's like, I don't know how easy it is if I was there to say, like, oh, yeah, for sure, I understand what you're saying. Like, you did a miracle, and like, yeah, what's next? Like, yes, where, where yeah. Where sure. So, yeah. I don't know. What would you have? Yeah. I mean, I have some thoughts. So uh, to summarize, because I always forget to do that. Um, that if God is not deceptive, which we know he is not because he's true and good and beautiful, why does it seem as though there is an uh, overarching misinterpretation of the words that the Holy Spirit inspired to be used here? Why, did, why wasn't it clearer that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom? Um, and I think for there's multiple ways that we can like understand this based on other things that Jesus says and does, right? Jesus has what's called, especially in the Gospel of Mark, the messianic secret. He doesn't just come out and say, I am the Messiah, and this is exactly what I'm going to do, because then the climactic moment between him and the powers that be will happen too soon, and he won't get to fulfill his mission. He's very intentional about the timeline of that. And so he could have very well foreknew that if he had been clearer, and if it had been painted clearer, he would not have been able to fulfill his ministry in the way that he intended. Um, And in another sense... Yes, his kingdom is spiritual, but it also is physical, and it will be physical. The kingdom, we believe, is both here and not yet, and the foreshadowing of a future kingdom in heaven is the church. And the church is very physical in the sense that you and I are the body of Christ, and that we are here. So the way in which they interpreted the physicality of that kingdom could have been because of their expectations that they had from the Old Testament, because there are plenty of other areas in the Old Testament, like all of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah, uh, talking about how the Messiah is going to suffer and that uh, he will be pierced and that he will be broken, that they will cast lots for his garments. And nobody is like, when the Messiah is coming, they're like, yeah, the suffering servant is here, even though it's clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. They had culturally been formed to expect and hope for, generation after generation, this kind of political deliverance. Because that, that is what had happened previously with figures like Moses. It was a very political deliverance that had this very spiritual element to it when they're given the new law and they become a new people. So, you know, if we are always looking to the past, there's benefit in that, in retrospect and in learning and learning from the past, but we also fall into the trap of seeking to repeat those same patterns. And so I think that's why. It was partly the Jewish people's perspective was so narrow that they could not have seen the openness with which these words could be interpreted, but also it would not have been useful to Jesus, as useful to Jesus, had he been clearer, had the Holy Spirit inspired him to say it more clearly, and Mark is trying to accurately record what was said at the time, uh, so that he could fulfill his entire three-year mission. You know, it would have been a couple weeks, and these Pharisees would have come in and be like, this guy says he's the Messiah. Like, he's clearly saying it. We should kill him. You know, and then that's it. You know, we got two chapters of Mark, and we're done. You know, that wouldn't be that that effective. So I think that's that's part of the reason why. Um, we also, the, the language of the kingdom of God, too, uh, is an important distinction here. Um, the word, I believe, in Greek is basileia, and that can be translated as uh, the kingdom of God, the kingship of God, or my preferred translation, which is the reign of God. And the reign of God 
has that kind of element of being both very spiritual and both very physical, that there are earthly rulers that have a reign and a dominion, but the reign of God, like God reigning over your life, having sovereignty over your life, every time you hear that kingdom of God language, like to me, that's just, when I say it even, I kind of feel the power of that more than thinking more of this kind of maybe antiquated view of an Old Testament kingdom that they just wanted to reiterate some version of, you know? So, um, but that might be a translation issue more for us than it would have been for them. They probably would have known more so what that meant in the original language than we do now. But, so I think there's a, are a few reasons. There's probably even better answers out there. Um, but I think I too probably would have misinterpreted that. I think there were very few groups the Essenes were one of them that were associated with people like John the Baptist. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're primarily the ones. Um, I was going to say another group, but that would have been wrong. Uh, the Essenes who were expecting that more prophetic uh, figure who was like a prophet like Moses and Elijah to come and have this kind of spiritual renewal who were very concerned with ascetic practices, self-denial, the spiritual revival, the spiritual renewal that the Messiah was going to bring. But they were a very small minority. It was predominantly the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were in the seats of power. Sadducees were all the high priests, some of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were most of the Sanhedrin, and they're the ones telling people, here's what the law says, and here's how you're supposed to practice it. So what are they going to hear? Predominantly, kingdom language, you know, because that's who's giving it to them. So personal interpretation, who's in power, communicating what to expect, and then Jesus would not have been served by having that happen too quickly. He is... His mission is better served by having more open-ended language that is clearer later. It's more in the line of prophecy than clear narration or even a parable, you know. So does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Although in the case of the people of Nineveh, mm-hmm. they, they don't need any of the prophecy. They need to, you know, repent now. Yes. Otherwise, they're going to be destroyed. Right? Yeah. That's extremely clear. Yes. And and. and even Jesus is not really speaking with such urgency, it seems. No. He's, he's saying repent, but it's not an yeah. obvious, like, Jonah, yeah. you're going to be destroyed immediately. Yes. Well, they have longer than three days. So he's going to be with them for three years. Jonah was like, it's going to be three days. So the urgency was clear why the urgency and clarity was needed, because this is going to happen in three days. Where Jesus knew he'd be ministering for three years. And so he has the ability to take his time you know, and to gradually get where he needs to get to build that momentum and not to allow the culmination of those tensions between the powers that be to bring about his early death. Yeah. Yeah, Leah. I think what can you say that if there was a very clear description that Jesus is the Messiah, the Jewish people would have not crucified him because he was the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And if that was very clear without a doubt that he was the Messiah, in the prophecies of the Old Testament and would not be fulfilled. Sure. So it, I mean, you just said it. Yeah. The prophecy. So I think that's a big part of it, too, is that the story was told very explicitly throughout the Old Testament. And if things don't happen that way, then we're left with a God who is deceptive and doesn't fulfill prophecies. Yeah. So it had to happen exactly the way it did. And not every Jewish person could believe explicitly or the prophecies wouldn't be fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if everyone knew that Jesus was the Messiah, then nobody would have crucified him, you know. But that reality comes from, I think, that generation of interpreting who the Messiah was going to be in a very particular way, aligned with certain Old Testament figures that Jesus very much turns upside down and yet still fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies. You know, they've calculated these multiple times. And the number I often hear is there's 353 Messianic prophecies. Jesus has filled all of them so far. Some of them have to do with the second coming, but most of them have to do with him coming as the Messiah the first time, and he's fulfilled all of them. And there's a beautiful study, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but about the statistical likelihood of Jesus fulfilling even one of those prophecies, or eight of them, and it's like one in like 10 to the 14th. I mean, you do you know the number? Yeah, no, it's the one that he covered the entire state of Texas three feet deep in quarters, and you walk and you can pick up the one quarter that comes from Fulfill eight or all of them? No, eight. It was just eight. Yeah, yeah. Yep, and pick one on your first try. Yep, and it has to be the right one. Yep, that's like the lie. That's just eight prophecies of three hundred and fifty-three. So even though it wasn't as clear to the Jewish people at that time, it was abundantly clear to Jesus what he was doing, and uh, and it's incredible that that 
we can even study those things. You know, it's amazing. So, I mean, some of the prophecies you can't study the statistical likelihood, but you can study the statistical likelihood that someone at that time would be born in Bethlehem because you know the population and things like that. So, um, yeah, I talked about that at one of the Catholicism 101s recently. So I have the statistics somewhere. If you're curious, email me and I'll send it to you. But, yeah. Anyway, great question. Was that our first question? That was amazing. Okay. <laughs> Other questions or things that stood out to you? What resonated with you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus. But what did the Holy Spirit do right before this? Descended upon Jesus like a dove in baptism. Okay, so we have this cleansing power. Well, not cleansing. I don't want to be theologically inaccurate. Jesus did not need to be cleansed, right? St. Gregory of Nazianzus said, Jesus did not come to be baptized by the waters, but he came to baptize the waters on our behalf um, so that they would cleanse us. He did not need to be cleansed, but he did it as one of the ways scripturally that we have a pretext for the fact that Jesus wants us to be baptized in order to be saved. Okay? And that's actually one of the, the lines in the second reading for this upcoming Sunday, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Um, for Christ also suffered for sins once. Oh, this is a little bit later. Verse 21, he talks about Noah, and he says, This prefigured baptism which saves you now. So Peter here is clearly writing that the early church understood that baptism saves you. Okay? Belief in Jesus Christ, receiving that gift of what he did for us on the cross through baptism. Uh, and Jesus is establishing that in one way here by being baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and immediately drives him out into the desert. I was thinking about this detail, actually, and I, I was reflecting on the fact that like, I don't understand why the prosperity gospel exists. Like the health and wealth gospel, if you've heard it before, that says, like, if you believe in Jesus, your life will be great. You'll make a bunch of money. I mean, televangelists make a ton of money on this, and people buy into it because they want to live a better life. They're, they're dealing with different struggles and suffering, and then all of a sudden they experience Jesus in some way, and their life improves, and they, they attribute that completely to the Lord, and then they give all this money, and they, they keep experiencing this abundance. You know, this is what they report. But the human, human existence is riddled with suffering and loss and despair, and all those people eventually will die, which I think is something that they're probably not going to be a fan of, um, or most people fear, you know? Um, and so... I just don't understand why it exists, because in my experience, and you've probably experienced this too, when you seek to grow in the spiritual life, initially, is it easier or is it harder? It's way harder, right? And I see this all the time with people in OCIA converting to the church, and I warn them every week or every other week, be on your guard against spiritual warfare. The devil does not want you to experience the grace of the sacraments. The devil does not want you to get closer to Jesus. He will attack. He will attack. It'll, and, and I feel like every year leading up to Lent and in the midst of the Lenten season, I have more and more people coming and telling me, this is what's going on in my life. This is what's going on in my life. And it's just, I see it all as the devil trying to snuff out these lights that the Lord is seeking to grow and cultivate in us, leading to the joy of the Easter season or leading to the deeper spiritual life. And so it doesn't make sense to me that that gospel exists because it is completely antithetical to human experience. Because... Getting back to this passage, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, evil must be confronted and defeated. Otherwise, God cannot reign sovereign in our hearts. If we're holding on to evil, if we're holding on to attachments to this earth and to things that might be serving as idols, we cannot allow the reign of God to be known in our own lives. So if you want the Holy Spirit to come, invite the Holy Spirit to come, but you have to welcome the fact that when that happens, Things will rise to the surface that need to be confronted and defeated in order for you to live in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that will always be hard. It will always be difficult. It will always be a struggle. Okay, we are not guaranteed that we will be healed in this life. One of my favorite all-time scenes from The Chosen was, I think, in last season, chapter 3, or ch chapter 3, uh, talking about the Bible, uh, season 3, where Jesus uh, conf is confronted by little James, who in his depiction in the series has a limp. And he sees Jesus healing all of these people, and he goes to Jesus and he says, why haven't you healed me? Why haven't you healed me? And Jesus, he goes into an example of, you know, he tells him, like, the example of your suffering is going to do more and all of that. But he has this line where he says, you will be healed. It is only a matter of time. 
all of us will be healed and will live that life of abundance and satisfaction and fulfillment that we're looking for. It is only a matter of time, but we are not promised that it will happen in this life. Jesus himself says, I tell you, in this world, you will have trouble. But I tell you this, so you will have peace. Like, thanks, Jesus. That's so nice. What a warm, fuzzy, lovely conversation. You're going to suffer, but be okay with it, you know? But he's telling you that to prepare you for the fact that this is what this life is like. But have peace in knowing that this life is not all there is to life. This is why when people were confirmed a long time ago in the church, the bishop would anoint them with oil and he would slap them across the face to prepare them for the persecution that they would experience by now being a walking soldier for Christ out in the world seeking to defend and promote the Catholic faith and live out whatever the unique call of them being a disciple of Jesus looked like. That is what happens. And so it's no wonder Jesus is driven out into the desert, very forceful language, because when the Spirit is active in our life, evil must be confronted and defeated. I love how Father Mike Schmitz puts it. He says, serious prayer and serious sin cannot coexist. One will destroy the other. In your life, serious sin and serious prayer cannot coexist. One will destroy the other. And we see the example of Jesus showing us that here by allowing himself to be driven out into the desert. There's this really amazing passage or a reflection from St. Lawrence of Brindisi. And he talks about this fact that, uh, that Jesus allows himself in his human form to face the devil basically with one arm tied around his back. His divinity is tied around his back and yet with one arm still utterly defeats the devil. And how much confidence we can have in Jesus, even in the form of being subjugated by his human nature, still completely conquers the enemy and any temptation that Satan can throw at him. And the confidence that should inspire in us that we allow that God to reign in our life. Yes, those things will rise to the surface. When you melt down metal, all of the impurities rise to the top, but it's so that they can be sloughed off. That is what the Spirit seeks to do. Evil cannot persist when the Spirit is in your life. It must be confronted and defeated. That is where the tension exists. That is why the Christian life is so difficult. And the more we hold on to those impurities, the more we hold on to those earthly attachments, the harder it will be. That, I think, is, is one of the powerful things that I've been reflecting on that I, I've been able to, to learn this week from this passage. So I hope, I hope that's a blessing to you as well. Other uh, things that stand out, we've got about 10 minutes. Other questions, thoughts? Yes. Well, I, just, I wanted to go back to what you were just saying, mm -hmm. um, that when we invite the Holy Spirit into our, into our hearts, and especially now, um, you know, the, the March for Life is coming up, I believe, on February the 14th. And Where? Uh, we're going to, they're, they're going to be uh, in front of the Planned Parenthood. Oh, okay, meeting. so you're doing a local one. Okay, because yeah. so I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they did that in January. But gotcha, okay, cool. Oh, the local one. Yes, yeah. Okay, good. Local March for Life on Wednesday. <laughs> 40 days. Oh, 40 days for life. Yeah, leading into Lent. Okay, I see what you're saying now. Gotcha. And, uh, what you were saying is kind of what you and I went back on before we got out here today is uh, even doing a notary yeah. in front in, in public squares and, and doing something that we think is right in the eyes of God. Mm -hmm. uh, the unborn, how we're now considered to be terrorists when we do that and how we're being persecuted for doing things like that and when people people are actually doing evil things they get you know let out of jail the next day. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very prominent theme in the gospels of Jesus's kingdom being an upside down kingdom. That it's Contrary to what people expected, contrary to their experience of how they were living out the Old Testament law, he flips it on its head. Sermon on the Mount is a great example of this. You've heard that it was said that if you leave your wife and go sleep with another, you've committed adultery. But I tell you, even if you look at another woman with lust, that you've committed adultery in your heart. Like he flips this upside down. But part of the reason why the kingdom of God is so upside down is because our world is so upside down and Jesus is seeking to turn it right side up. And so all of these things we experience in the Christian life can feel very backwards. You know, it, in many ways, it is easier to not be a Christian. Like when I talk about sin, I'm talking about sin this upcoming Sunday at Catholicism 101. We're talking about the sacraments of healing and reconciliation. And so I'm going to talk about mortal sin and venial sin. And part of what constitutes a mortal sin, a serious sin, is that you have to be aware that it is a sin. And as Catholics, we have kind of the burden of knowledge 
that we are more capable in one sense of mortal sin because we're aware of how much is out there that can cause us to fall from grace and that we need to be even more on our guard against uh, the enemy and against attack and temptation because we don't have the bliss of ignorance that some people might have. You know, yes, we have some kind of basis knowledge just as humans of what's right and what's wrong. But the more you learn, the more you kind of have this, this burden of knowledge that you then have to live in response to. And so, again, as you ascend the mountain of faith and seek to go higher and higher, it gets more and more difficult. I don't think anyone's getting winded at the base of Mount Everest. I was like, oh, man, getting on my first step on that path was real hard. But at the top, that's where people are dying. The same thing is true of the spiritual life. You know, it, it, it's not as difficult to get started, but it does, it does mean it's a difficult journey that you're starting, so you will experience difficulty. But the further up that you go, it doesn't mean that that difficulty is going to go away. Okay? Now, the blessing and the joy that you experience, the grace that you get from the sacraments that pours out absolutely will be far and above what you've experienced uh, compared to what you've experienced before, but it doesn't make the suffering go away. Not always. Sometimes it might relieve it. Sometimes it might cause you to live in such a way where you're not falling into those patterns as much. But the devil is creative, and he always has new ideas to destroy and to tempt us. And so we always need to be on our guard. Always need to be on our guard. If we live in the Spirit, it will constantly guide us to places where we have to confront and defeat evil. We should not be surprised by that should empower us and invigorate us. When you feel the devil's attack, what I like to tell the devil um, is, I mean, I'd, okay, this is a, that was a weird way to put it. You're getting into the weirdness of my own personal spiritual life. But anyways, what I like to, what I like to imagine when I'm being confronted by the enemy is that I must be such a threat to the enemy that he is attacking me in this way. And so there's something good going on in my life that is a threat to him that I need to protect and grow and cultivate. So anytime you experience suffering, anytime you experience persecution, doubt, difficulty in your faith, take that as a pat on the back by the Holy Spirit that says, you're doing the right thing. This is why you're scaring the devil into this new tactic. Stay the course. Do not give up. Because then you are no longer a threat to the enemy. Always live your life as a threat to the enemy. Always. And the Holy Spirit, if you live with the Holy Spirit, he will continue to lead you places where you consistently will be a threat to the enemy. Other thoughts? Questions? Yes? Uh, two questions. So back to like, the proximity um, to Jerusalem, and if it would have started there, like his ministry would have ended with right? Yes, right. yeah. So in some sense, so he was born in Bethlehem, which is... Like south of Jerusalem, but he was yes. in Nazareth, which is north in Galilee, of, yeah, north of Samaria. Yes, just barely north of Samaria. Yeah, yeah. so it's kind of far, right? Yeah. Okay, so that kind of is there any significance why he didn't start it anywhere else, or is he just okay? I'm starting it. I'm here. Let's go. Like, I'm yes, start it near my house. Like, yeah, cool. yeah. Well, he doesn't really start near his house. Actually, he starts in like Capernaum and Bethsaida, which is are, they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where Nazareth is. And Nazareth isn't super close to the Sea of Galilee. It's close regionally, but it's not like on the shore like those cities are. And it's across. Uh, and so, why does he start there and not in Jerusalem? Uh, multiple reasons. Jerusalem, Judea, was really the realm of John the Baptist at that time. And so, if he'd started down there, there would have been this conflict between them you know, that would have naturally arisen. It's also why Jesus doesn't really begin his public ministry until John is arrested, right? That happens very early on. So it's clear that there's a stage, like people are looking to John the Baptist, then John the Baptist points them to Jesus, and then he's off the scene and completely disappears so that there is no conflict in someone being a disciple of Jesus and wondering, are you the right guy or are you the right guy? You're dressed up like Elijah. That guy's saying weird stuff, like, who do I follow, you know? Um, it was clear the trajectory was always pointing toward Jesus. And then Galilee at that time was known as Galilee of the Gentiles because of how it had been intermingled with non-Jewish people. Uh, but Nazareth was kind of a, it was a small town. No Roman road existed to it. It was kind of one of those, like, places where if people are, if religious people are really, like, uh, fed up with society, they retreat to and they make, like, a hyper-religious society. That was very indicative of the culture of Nazareth, that it would have been very, very faithfully Jewish. It was very small. Even though it was in the region of Galilee, it was clear from, like, the anthropological writings, it was basically like a Jewish commune. You know, like, that's, like, they wanted the ideal life in the northern region. 
Uh, but the northern region where Capernaum and where Bethsaida are, are the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And if you remember those from some of the biblical prophecies, those are the places that fall first to the Assyrians when they are taken into destruction and led into exile in the Old Testament. So in these ways that those tribes in the north fell into idolatry and that led to their destruction and then being taken off into exile, Jesus goes to that first place of disobedience, just like he goes back symbolically to the disobedience of Adam being thrust out into the desert. He goes to that region to undo what sin had done and destroyed. So there's a lot of significance to that region why he starts there. And then the second part. Uh, no, you're good. Was, yeah. um, so in Mark's gospel, like I was always under the impression that the timeline was the first act of Jesus was the wedding of Cana. Yeah, yeah, that's in John. Yeah, but here is no, no mention of that. Yes. Like, and this was written first. Yes. So are we are we just saying that you like strangely omit that? Um, yeah, so uh, where is the wedding at Cana? What are the first things that happen? And yeah, this has a lot to do. I mean, we could give a whole Bible study on this. I, mean, I just want to like, emphasize, because I'm like reading, I'm like, wait, something's wrong here. Yes. Like, we need Mary in this picture for his ministry. Yes. Really yeah. Like, yeah. That's what I've been catechizing. If I was to read this alone, I would say, yeah, she's not that important. Like, he didn't even mention that. Sure. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, Mark's gospel, he's concerned with getting the good news out there, the proclamation of the kingdom, which has everything to do with Jesus' ministry. It's only after that, when Matthew and Luke are written, uh, within five and ten years after, is that you have the birth narratives and the early childhood stories, the introduction of Mary and Joseph, and those like prominent other supernatural events that lead up to his public ministry. Um, but because of the nature of how these Gospels are written, Mark is a collection of eyewitness testimonies that he gets chronology from predominantly Peter. He's a traveling companion of Peter, and, uh, and I believe also of Paul for a short time, but predominantly of Peter. And so the Gospel of Mark is sometimes nicknamed the Gospel of Peter. Um, and so he gets these kind of prominent key events from him. What was most important in Jesus's ministry? Let's get the message out there. Nothing has been written yet about this man. And so you have over and over again, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, immediately this happened in, in Mark. It's very, very fast. It's very short for that reason. Proclaiming Jesus as, again, the Lion of Judah, the defeater of death, the one who comes to be opposed to this earthly idea of Caesar saving us and having this quote-unquote peace. He delivers us from sin and death and brings about true lasting peace and eternal life. So that's the purpose of Mark. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience and just loads in a bunch of Jewish imagery, Jewish Old Testament uh, prophecies that Jesus fulfills that Mark just didn't, didn't add because they weren't his concern at the time. His concern was getting the message of who Jesus was out there. Matthew wants to write about how Jesus is the Messiah. Luke is a Gentile, and he's a physician. And so he's very concerned with the orderly way in which Jesus' ministry came about, and he didn't know Jesus. He's a traveling companion of Paul. And we know that he probably got eyewitness testimony from Mary herself, which is why we have the birth narrative at all, because no one else knew that. So he wouldn't interview her. So we can, in my opinion, rely on the chronology of Luke the best. Because he has no stake in, I want to present a certain message of my experience of Jesus, because he didn't. All he could do, and he says it in the very beginning, I have sought to investigate everything accurately anew for you, Theophilus. So he says from the beginning, I went to seek eyewitness testimonies and put it in the best chronological order based on my investigation. Uh, and he has the most complete version of that eyewitness testimony. Those three, the synoptic gospels, were written within very likely 15 years of each other, in my opinion, of how they should be dated. Uh, John is written shortly thereafter, in my opinion, uh, around 60, 65 to 68 uh, AD, because there's references to the temple still being uh, in existence in the, in the writing of John, and that was destroyed in 70. Uh, and John's concern is not to redo what they had already done, but to paint that, that Jesus is the divine Son of God. So he includes specific... Uh, stories and uh, experiences of their ministry with Jesus that were left out of the others to help better convey that. Uh, and so wedding at Cana is in John chapter 2. What's also in John chapter 2 is Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple, which in every other gospel happens during the week of Holy Week at the very end of his ministry. So John's concern is not chronology. John's concern is showing the divinity of Jesus Christ, and he paints it in a very thematically beautiful way. But reading it um, with like the exegesis of reading into what was G John trying to convey at the time, it's not clear at all that John cares about chronology. 
I mean, look at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with it. It sounds like the beginning of a Star Wars movie, right? It's like, let me tell you this incredible epic that starts all the way back in Genesis, versus where Luke is like, I went to investigate everything anew, and I'm telling you, this is how it happened. You know, so like, you can glean from the text that the authors leave, like, it's all true, and it's all written, how it's written for a particular purpose. That's how we understand how the Holy Spirit inspired it, and it's without error. But they wrote it to particular audiences at particular times for particular purposes. So that's why. Mark is fast and quick. Matthew is very narrow and and um, like prophetic in the sense of here's the disc. Yes. Luke is very uh, chronologically and detailed, and John is very high. Yes. Yeah. Very high theology. Yes. Not like what you know. Not that kind of high. So. Yes, yeah, the symbol of John is the eagle, the bird. Yeah, so the symbols, if you've ever, if you've ever seen them, of the four evangelists are Mark is the lion, uh, Matthew is the man presenting Jesus, the humanity of Jesus as the Messiah, uh, Luke is the calf, the sacrificial lamb of God being presented who is offered not only for the Jewish people but for all the Gentiles. We have the most miracles, the most parables, the most stories of Jesus interacting with women and Gentiles in the Gospel of Luke. And then John is the eagle because he soars so much higher above all the other Gospels theologically. C.S. Lewis said that uh, there is no comparison to the Gospel of John until the writing of the modern novel with Don Quixote in like the 1500s or 1400s. It's that literarily genius that it, it in itself, in itself, he considered a miracle that it even existed and was written in the form that we have it so much longer before that. And so that's how high the theology is um, in the Gospel of John. Really, really cool. Great questions. Um, I want to bring it back to just that point of the Holy Spirit. As we enter into the season of Lent, I encourage you, invite the Holy Spirit into your life. Invite the Holy Spirit to convict you over these next 48 hours. Where in my life are there attachments, idols, things that need to rise to the surface that need to be confronted and defeated this Lent? I always ask this question every Lent. How do you want to be different on Easter morning? How do you want to be different on Easter morning? What will get you there? Do those things for Lent. Whether they're commitments, fasting, giving alms, whatever it is, whatever ascetic practices you can commit to, to purify yourself and prepare yourself to live that joy of Easter every single day, root those things out of your life that prevent you from encountering the Lord every day, prevent you from being devoted to Him. That's what Lent is about. Embrace that. It will be hard because everything worth doing is hard. If it were easy, everybody would do it. So let's acknowledge that when that difficulty, that persecution happens, it's because the devil sees lights going off in the darkness and he wants to snuff them out. So when you experience that, stay the course. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. God is with you. Let's pray. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this time and your word. Thank you for all these people here. Thank you for the ways in which sacred scripture continues to guide and convict us, even three or four short verses um, can inspire so much depth and so much study. And so we pray, Lord, that we would never exhaust our hunger for you, for knowing you, for encountering you, for following you faithfully. And we pray, Lord, that this Lent would be a fruitful season where we grow even closer to the people you've called us to be. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. And we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.